Welcome back to the Blue Line Millennial Podcast. Hopefully I don't choke on my own coffee this time. This will be the second time I have uh, tried to get this intro going. Joining me today, all the way from San Diego, California, Cody J. Perrin, author of Agents of no- Agents Unknown, True Stories of Life as a Special Agent in the Diplomatic Security Service. Cody is a uh, Marine Corps veteran, uh, obviously a DSS uh, security officer veteran. He's an author. He's a podcast host. Uh, he's the chief operations officer and co-founder of Fidelis Global Group LLC as well. Cody, thank you for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you for having me, bud. Of course, man. I do appreciate you coming on. Uh, Cody and I are playing Wi-Fi tag right now. So for those of you listening to this, you may notice a little bit of a lag there. Um, but it's just that's just what we're working with until I get some sort of like high speed fiber optic cable. Uh my Wi-Fi is uh, is just going to be what it's going to be, so <laughs> we'll just work through it. Uh, Cody, I do start uh, uh, every show off with a few icebreaker questions, man. Uh, I think I sent those to you a little bit ago, um, so I'd like to dive into those. Uh, my first question for you is that you can have a drink with anybody, living or dead. Who is it, and what are you drinking? Yeah, you know, I had to think about this, one. I feel like I, this question comes up in my own brain sometimes, and I have a, a list. Uh, but uh, I, I think I'd have to narrow it down to two, probably George Washington or uh, Abraham Lincoln. Um, let's just go with Lincoln. I named my son Lincoln after him. I think he's one of our greatest presidents. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'd really uh, like to pick his brain and hear the dude talk. Uh, what we're drinking, man, we're drinking bourbon. Uh, I think he's from Kentucky. or he, he Knob Creek is obviously a, a good bourbon that's, that's out there. And I'm a bourbon drinker. I drink more Buffalo Trace these days, but, uh, but Knob Creek is... Uh, one I enjoy as well. I am a Buffalo Trace fan uh, as well. A good old fashioned uh, Buffalo Trace and then some of their other products. I just got my first bottle of Eagle Rare. Uh, so I understand you're coming to Arizona for uh, a Spartan race. I don't know how long you're going to be here. Um, but uh, by all means, if you come on my show, I owe you a drink. And so you just swing on by. I'll pour you a bourbon and uh, get the fire pit going and uh, you know, sweet, uh, sing sweet nothings into your ears and we'll see what happens. <laughs> sure. My wife will enjoy that. <laughs> <laughs> she can have some bourbon too. I don't know. My wife doesn't drink it. So I'm the only one in the house to go through the bottles. Cause you know, I, my kid's only two. So I don't think he started, uh, started hitting that sauce just yet, man. But, um, all right. So Lincoln and you're drinking bourbon. I like it. I, I would be curious to know, and it comes up on the show every now and then, uh, asking, you know, our founding fathers and these like these titans of former presidents kind of showing them what's going on today and, and say, you know, hey, what what do you think about what's happening? Yeah, I, I, I wonder if they might be disappointed. Um, and uh, I feel like, you know, uh, our founder, our founding founding documents and, and what they wrote is, is holding pretty strong, but uh, it's certainly being tested. Um and um, I, I feel like there would be a little bit of disappointment. I know, I know, I, I am, and, and I'm, I'm not. I don't have too much of a hardcore ideology on either side. I just want uh, you know to live a life in peace um, and not be told what to do. And um, I think that was their objective. And uh, it seems that that continues to be uh, trampled on a bit, and that tends to bother me. Yeah, I think Probably that. Uh... I've had this this discussion with my wife because uh, she and I have generally opposing viewpoints. At least at the start of our relationship, we did you know ten years ago, and now she and I have both kind of you know come come to center as it were. But 
that whole just everybody just wants to be left the hell alone. And I think that uh, it's, it's an issue when too many people want to sit out there and, and scream at you from the front porch, oh, you need to do this and you need to do that. And it's like, why don't you just mind your own damn business? Let me do me and you do you and we'll just all be happy. Yeah. Yeah. It's not that hard. Right. I mean, but we'll see. I, I feel, feel like we're, we're in a critical time in history right now. And, and uh, you know, the pendulum tends to swing with uh, every uh, presidential election. And I feel like it's continued to swing further and further on each side when we come back. And I think that's dangerous. We need to find some way to come back towards the middle, find some middle ground. And there's a lot of people on both sides that, that don't care to compromise or have any middle ground. And, and uh, you know, I, I don't think that's, that's the mindset we need to have. Uh, so, you know, I'm not saying compromise with someone that is completely uh, against your your set of values, your core values, right? I understand that that if someone is completely opposed to those, that you don't uh, that you don't compromise. Um, but there, if there's some way that I know there are a lot, I think there are more people in the middle than there are you know on the far left or far right. And and I have a lot of friends that believe in a different uh, kind of ideology, probably of mine. Uh, somewhat different, and, but but we're we're great friends, and we we understand each other, and and some things we agree, some things we don't, but they're good people, um, and we don't have a lot of that these days, right? It's, it's kind of knives out when people are talking anything politics. Yeah, it's everybody wants to tell you exactly why you're wrong and exactly why they're right, but you, I mean, you do, man. You come to find that you and and you know friends of yours and acquaintances may not agree on everything, but again, if y'all just you know you know what to talk about and you know what not to talk about. Or if it does come up, you know, to remain civil with one another. I just, it's just not that complex of a task, but so I, I overall, man, I like it. I agree with, uh, with, uh, with that, uh, you know, Lincoln and I agree with bourbon cause I'm a bourbon drinker myself. That's pretty much all I drink anymore. So I, uh, I gave up my Miller light and uh, decided to just completely go hundred miles an hour the other direction. So, <laughs> all right, man. Well, um, uh, I see, uh, so Cody and I are doing this via, uh, via video chat, which I know that those of you listening can't see, but behind Cody, there's a whole bookshelf just stacked with pages and pages. So I got to ask Cody, what are you reading right now or listening to? Yeah, so I'm doing a little bit of both. I have a, I have a commute on my hands, uh, uh for my commute, I'm listening to battlegrounds by, uh, kind of general McMaster, former national security advisor. Um, it's, uh, it's pretty in depth. I, 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 I enjoy, uh, international affairs, global affairs. My undergrad degree is in that. Obviously I joined the state department, joined the military and the state department. Uh, I, I, I gra- uh, gravitated towards international affairs after joining the military and, and, and going into the, uh, prior to coming, going into the state department. Um, uh, so, uh, right now I'm reading, uh, Red Roulette. It's, uh, it's got Desmond Shum. It's pretty good. Uh, it's about China and uh, kind of the politics and corruption in China. Um, this guy was born and raised there, went to Hong Kong, ended up being kind of self-made million billionaire. And, uh, you know, when you become that rich and wealthy and powerful uh, in China, you become uh, kind of a, a target. And uh, and so he tells the story there. I, I haven't got too deep into it. I'm a few chapters in, but it's, it's starting to get pretty good. And, and you, you mentioned that uh, that you didn't get into global affairs uh, until after your your time in your Marine Corps, uh, your Marine Corps time, rather. Was it was global affairs at all on your radar prior to you joining the Marine Corps? Or was it just something that 
as you as your time went by in the military, you thought like, hey, you know what? Like that, I this shit's really interesting to me. Yeah, good question. No, nowhere on my radar. I, I'm from small town Louisiana. All right, I didn't. I left the Marine Corps '98, and I was gonna. My whole goal was to four years in the infantry and be a Louisiana State Trooper. And um, it's a noble job in itself. It's a good academy. It's a good. It's a good uh, unit. Uh, but then uh, when I so after. So after two years in the infantry, a little less than two years, I ended up getting uh, volunteering and getting accepted uh, to the Marine. It was called Marine Security Guard Battalion back then. It's called Marine Port Embassy Security Group today. And uh, uh, they, they send you out to U.S. embassies to, to protect the embassies, right? Uh, it's uh, your standing post as a security watchstander, security guard, do patrols. But we have a full arsenal to be able to protect that location, that embassy, that consulate for at least up to 48 hours. So. Uh, some pretty advanced training for for quote unquote security guard stuff, but on a daily basis we were we were just kind of the key held the keys to the kingdom, you know, at the embassy. Point being that um, that that is uh, when you when you work as a marine security guard, you work uh, under the U.S. State Department under uh, a group called the uh, Diplomatic Security Service, which we'll talk about a little later. That's what I ended up my career ended up being in. And uh, so at that point, I'm living overseas and working at an embassy. Now I start seeing there's another world out there start getting into, you know, uh, the global politics of the region and the history of Russian history and the brutality of it. And, and, uh, and it just, it's really, it's just really interesting to me. It's just such a different life that people have lived that were living and had previously lived to what I have lived. Um, and so I got really interested in it. So when I got out of Marine Corps, I was an enlisted guy, uh, uh, and decided to go get my degree and I got an international affairs, uh, global affairs. And, um, yeah, so I've been interested ever since, uh, and uh, you know, got in with the State Department later. Uh, we'll talk about that, but it's a it's a global entity, obviously. It's our foreign policy branch. Right, right. I mean, absolutely, and and it was sort of, uh, I guess, it was fortuitous, right? You'd ended up working under these uh, these DSS agents, and then you yourself went later on to uh, to become a DSS agent. Where uh, when when you did that uh, that Marine security detail. Uh, did you end up just in, in one country or did you have multiple embassy experiences? So I worked officially in two, uh, back then you were doing, uh, you know, two, uh, over 36 months, you were doing two embassies. Uh, they changed that for a minute for a bit where you do three. So I was in Moscow, Russia. Speaking of, uh, the world, world events right now, global yeah, no events, kidding. I was in Russia, uh, first for my first assignment. I, I spent about 18 months there. Uh, it was a different place from what, well, I haven't been back, but from my understanding, it's a much, much different place than it is now. Uh, Putin wasn't in power yet. He's about to be. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it was an interesting place. Yeah, I can't even imagine. And I, I, I've noticed on, on your Instagram page, and again, we'll, we'll get into it, but you've uh, uh, been doing your part to sort of keep your followers up to date on, on some of the goings on there along uh, you know, in the Crimea and, and in that, you know, Donetsk and Luhansk, uh, or however you pronounce that, that other region, uh, and then what's going on up in Belarus and, uh, you know, the, the convoys of trucks that nobody else is reporting on. You don't, you don't see those convoys, you know, on any sort of mainstream media source. Um, but, you know, holy shit, it's, it's coming down to the wire uh, over there on what is now the, uh, I guess, I don't know, do you call it the New Eastern Front? I mean, that's kind of what it is. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I mean, 
I don't know what's going to happen. I, I I tend to think that they're going to invade. Um, but Putin is a is a master chess player. He's a former KGB officer and head of the, I think deputy head of the FSB at one point. Um, and he he plays. I, I was explaining to my wife this morning, but he's a, he's a master at gaslighting. You know, he says uh, he says, you know, what are you talking about, America? You know, we're not going to invade. You just you just you're blowing this out of proportion. He is. Meanwhile, he's had a hundred thousand troops on the border for three weeks, and just threw another fifty thousand on the border, and you know, and cyber attacks and everything else. So you know, he's he's just an ultimate uh, you know uh, game gamer, I guess, uh, in gaslighting. And, and so, I don't know what's going to happen. Um, it's it's not going to be good. It's going to be more traditional warfare than that than we've seen in the last couple decades. You know, with the being uh, involved in East Asia and the Middle East. I guess we'll see. Yeah, yeah. Only only time will tell. I was asking. Uh, uh, I don't know if you follow him on Instagram or see his YouTube videos. Uh, uh, Controlled Bears Gaming. It was a ranger, and I asked him. You know, did did we let the pendulum in terms of of the the military machine that is the the United States? Did we let the pendulum swing too far into counterinsurgency? And now we're like, oh holy shit, we've got to go and fight. You know, tank battalions for you know belonging to the Russians. You know, potentially. And his response was, look, we met the threat that we had at the time and we're going to, you know, God forbid we have to do this all over again, which I don't know that that anybody is really like, you know, rattling their sabers to go fight the Russians, um, except maybe some old dudes who didn't get their opportunity in the 80s like they thought they were going to. Um, But uh, he had just that 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 very brief but but, you know, pertinent statement that, look, we we've met the counterinsurgency enemy and if we have to meet a more traditional enemy then that's what we'll do so yeah it's uh interesting time so you know keep uh stay tuned right yeah yeah no kidding stay tuned for uh stay tuned for more next week uh it's actually i think it's almost a minute by minute uh developments now so uh well moving on from that we may we may circle back into that there um but uh, i i do have a couple more questions for you one of them being what is a conspiracy theory that you believe to be true Yeah, that was a hard one. Uh, I, I thought of one the other day. I mean, obviously prior to your questions, and, and I was I was talking to my wife about it, and I said, you know, I think this this mess. I cannot for the life of me think of it. But I, I don't know if this is a conspiracy. I, I think people on one side of the aisle think this is a conspiracy theory. Uh, I I don't know if it is. I I feel like there's plenty of evidence, but the, to me, that the news, big tech, academia, and the government on a particular side are all working together to uh, push a particular narrative is, uh, is I think most conservatives would say it's happening. It's not conspiracy theory, but I'm sure more uh, left left uh, leaning and liberals would say, no, that's, it's all in your head, you know? Uh, and uh, I, I, I think there's plenty of evidence to show that whether they're, they're, you know, in lockstep 100% communicating on a daily basis. I'm not saying that, but, I think they all have the same end goal, and I, and I imagine uh, they uh, they are the head of, of, of news organizations uh, and uh, academic institutions and, and tech uh, based tech companies and government officials. They all they all they I mean some of them know each other. That's, that's not a secret, right? Now I don't know who knows who, and if you know, I don't, I'm not saying they're all getting behind a dark curtain and talking together, uh, but I, but I think there's certainly a, a narrative that's being pushed and uh, politely or not requested that 
everybody kind of getting lockstep. And, and uh, you know, I, I don't, I, I personally don't think it's a conspiracy theory. I have friends that probably say that, you know, that this, but I don't, I'm not sure who your listener group is, but I feel like being with this podcast is about uh, that they, they may tend to agree with, with where I am on this, that people are kind of aligning with one narrative. You know, and so I, I just kind of, I wish it was to a point where, and I don't even know if I really experienced this, I was a kid, but where the news was just reported, you know, there's a news station out there, uh, I forget the name of it, but it's, I think it's trying to, it pulled people from both conservative networks or the one main conservative network and, and liberal networks. And I think they're trying to just report on the news and tell you when it's an opinion show. Um, I haven't seen it get much traction that's what that's what I would hope for. That's that, that's the conspiracy theory that came to mind when you uh, when I saw that question. Well, and you, and you bring up a good point as far as you know what what media sources are going to give you just the straight facts and information. I used to uh, my sister used to work. Uh, she worked for a couple of congressmen. She did the political science thing. She's a, a poli sci professor. And, and she had once told me that as far as news sources, that the U.S. news sources, and this is like ten years ago. Any U.S. news source, generally speaking, with the exception of maybe the Associated Press at the time, was going to be biased one way or another. And so she had me always going to BBC for their news source. But I mean, shit, Cody, you can't even log on to BBC without without seeing things that are, are very much, uh, I would say, towards the left side of the aisle. Um, you know, not maybe not even towards the left side of the aisle. They, I mean, they've gone like rudder hard to port type of thing, and, and they're full on, you know, it, it's still a Trump bashing extravaganza over at BBC News. Um, I, but I will say they're they're really good at shit talking Joe Biden as well. So maybe they are, you know, somewhere in the in the middle after all. But, uh, you know, it seems that damn near every news agency has picked a side as, you know, as it were. So I don't I don't think yeah, I don't yeah. think that's a conspiracy at all, man. I, I uh, again, I'm I'm inclined to agree with you. There are like you said, there are plenty of people who probably would say it's a conspiracy, but uh, I and probably most of the uh, listeners of this show would probably probably agree with you that that you're right on there. So, but uh, uh, my next and last icebreaker question, and then we'll dive into uh, into what makes you you. Um, you can go forwards or backwards ten years for a thirty minute conversation with yourself with no repercussions. I say no butterfly effect. You're not gonna break a twig and then all of a sudden the space aliens are, you know, invading us. There's anything along those lines. What, uh, which direction are you going and, uh, and what are you saying? Yeah, I think I'd go forward. I thought, you know, I gave, I gave it a little, a little thought and, and, you know, if I, if I went backwards and, and had a conversation myself and I'm not, I'm not exactly sure what you mean by butterfly effect, but, but, you know, I, if I, if I did things differently, I wouldn't have my, my family that I have now and, and I, I didn't, wouldn't want to change that um you know i'm in a i'm in a career now i'm actually <laughs> to go back to so i'm not i'm not uh the book needs to be up there i'm not with fidelis global group anymore we did that for about a year then i realized that having a consulting firm didn't pay right away so you know it's a rate of family didn't pay enough well enough. but i but i'm still in the the uh overarching uh corporate security field uh executive protection field still doing the things i've been doing um and so you know i i would i would probably go to i'd probably go 10 years ahead uh, and, and just tell myself to relax a little. Uh, you know, I, I think there's a, I, I, I tend to, and I live in California and there's a reason for it. I don't really care. 
necessarily to live here, uh, but I have uh, personal obligations in which uh, I need to stay here. Um, and, uh, you know, I think if, and so money's, uh, you know, is a, is a, is, is not a concern. Well, you know, we're, we're doing fine, but, but, you know, every prices are rising, right? Inflation, taxes continue to increase. You know, I want to send my kids to a good school. I don't necessarily agree with where maybe San Diego Unified is going as a school. So I might want to send them to a private school and do I even want my kid to be raised in California? My son and answers really no. Uh, so, but my, my, but I guess my, 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 my point is, you know, 10 years down the road, uh, knowing myself and my ambition and my skill set and where I've, that I've done and I've made it so far and not to stress so much about, you know, monetary issues that everything's going to be fine. You know, we're going to make it, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, kind of set that tone in my, in my, in my own head that, that this is, this is, it, it was all okay. Right. At that point, my son will be, uh, you know, 12, 13 years old and, and uh, everything will be just fine. Hopefully he's playing football and kicking some butt. I like it. I like it. I, uh, uh, my kid was born uh, a few weeks premature and he came out just a shade over six pounds. And now he's, uh, uh, we, before we started recording, Cody and I discovered that our sons are only two months apart. And, uh, so mine's just a little North of two years old and he's 35 pounds. And, and I had him in like swim classes more for like the safety of it than anything else. And one of the, one of my guys at work was like, there's no reason that your kid should be in a swim class because he's not a swimmer, man. This, you're raising a football player whether you fucking like it or not. So <laughs> hopefully uh, hopefully both our kids are out doing great things 10 years from now. For those... Uh, yeah, uh, I hear you. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. I hear you on the swim thing, though, because I, I, you know, I put my kid in, and I put Lincoln in one as well. Um, and uh, you know, it is for safety, safety purposes. Yeah. Yeah, somebody, I can't remember who I was talking to. Uh, might have been somebody that I was working with, but they were like, you know, we don't, this stuff wasn't around when we were kids and, and I hadn't put much thought into it, but I mean, my grandmother was a, was a lifeguard and a swim instructor. And so all of the grandkids got pitched into the pool, you know, when they were about our kids age. So, um, but yeah, it's just, it's especially out here in Arizona, everybody's got a pool or everybody knows somebody who has a pool at some point in time, your kid's going to end up next to a body of water. Uh, we got canals crisscrossing the whole the whole metro area down here, and, and it's important to make sure that your kids are uh, are safe. It's it's an investment in in their future. I mean, it's a hundred bucks a month or whatever to get your kid to swim four days a week, but better better a hundred dollars a month than uh, than a phone call that you don't want. So, uh, working in in law enforcement, uh, though I've not been on uh, a child drowning, I've been on a couple adult drownings, but uh, it's never never a fun conversation to have with anybody, no matter no matter how old that person is. So. That's that's kind of the way I look at it as we go through our careers. And I'm sure Cody can echo this, that there are things that you see and things that you hear and, and experiences that you have that end up, whether you like it or not, they end up shaping kind of your outlook on society. But but Cody, your travels have taken you all over the world, man. I mean, you uh, you had an interesting experience in Vietnam uh, or a, a couple interesting experiences. You, you've been. Uh, you've been into Iraq. You've spent some time here in the in the local uh, with the local police forces in the United States. Uh, you know, working out of uh, State Department offices, and we've we've hit on it a little bit as far as what drove you uh, from the Marine Corps. You know, through your your uh, experience in academia with uh, with global affairs, um, but what led you directly to the State Department? Because it's been said that the diplomatic security service is 
damn near the best kept secret in law enforcement because there's just not a whole lot of people that know about it. Yeah, I would agree. It's a best kept secret and I'm trying to, to, uh, you know, let that secret out, not, not for any other reason than to get some of the best candidates so we can do good work. You know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a fan of the agency. Uh, uh, obviously that's what I'm doing with all my, with all the, with the book and the podcast and everything is trying to get the word out. But how, how I, how I got to it. So again, I was in the infantry. Uh, I was I'm from a small town, Louisiana, I left there in 98, joined the Marine Corps infantry. I was the first battalion, seventh Marine in 29 Palms, California. Sounds like a magical place <laughs> until you know what 29 Palms is. <laughs> yeah, there's, not, there's no palms there. They, they call it 29 Stumps as well as a nickname. And, you know, I did, I did, uh, I did a little, I did almost two years there and I was ready to go. Like I, I, I joined the infantry. I was, I was excited about it, but I, I, the desert, continual desert training living out there it was just awful if i've been in pendleton or or east coast maybe i, I wouldn't I, or you know probably i may not have pursued the marine security guard route but to get out of 29 palms i had to do something you know one of the reasons i joined the marine corps was to travel wasn't doing that at 29 palms one seven uh though i did hit japan and korea uh you know i, I did a little pump over there um and so uh uh what i ended up uh, doing his uh, volunteering for the Marine Security Guard Battalion. I got sent to uh, uh, training up in Quantico and then, uh, then to Moscow, Russia. And then, you know, uh, while I'm in training, they told us about these, these guys and girls named, you know, the main security service special agents. And, you know, we're Marines. We're fucking hardcore, right? Uh, who are these guys? Guys and girls, right? I can't, they don't know anything. We're going to, you know, but anyway, so I get there and, you know, realize we're all just kids, the Marines, and then you got some pretty, some people that are pretty experienced. Uh, and a lot of them were former Marines, former everything, you know, come from all different sectors. And, and uh, so I learned that uh, working, so the, just back up a little bit, the Marine Security Guard detachments are uh, one of the only uh, active duty military units that fall under operational civilian control. And by that, I mean, if there was something that goes on at the U.S. Embassy, some type of attack or uh the diplomatic security special agents in charge would make the decisions ultimately. And we used to say as Marines, you know, like, well, if it's the wrong decision, we're going to stand up for ourselves and, and, and do what we got to do. And we probably would have, I think we would have. And, you know, maybe my Marines, when I was a DS agent, I hate, I should say my Marines, when I was a DS agent, the, the detachment that I brought in in Vietnam, you know, I, I felt like uh, they had my back and they, that whatever I had said, they would have done only because they, I think we were aligned on a lot of stuff on how we would agree operate you know when we respond to some type of attack if we had to um so anyway uh yeah so i learned about i learned about the state department special agents then and i realized all right well i'm, I'm starting to enjoy international affairs and learning living overseas but my whole end goal was to be in law enforcement um and and i learned of this position the special agent with my security where I, can, where I can be in law enforcement and also travel overseas a lot well, it was the best of both worlds Right. So uh, after that point, my, my whole goal, my end goal was was to get into federal law enforcement, which is coming from small town, Louisiana. I thought that was uh, like the NFL. Right. Like, you know, it's hard to get in. You're never going to get in this. And then I realized, uh, you know, that it wasn't uh, and it's just not to say it's not hard, but uh, it's it's doable. Obviously, I, I did it. Um, and uh, so anyway, so I, I tried to try three times to get in 
to the State Department, and, and uh, twice I was denied. Um, got passed most of the test, didn't pass the end. Uh, I was told I was too humble. <laughs> it was just not a <laughs> not really been told. But what I, I think when when I what I tell people now is when you go into these this training, I don't want to get too off topic, Kevin. But what we go into the to the testing phase, like don't be overly humble, don't embellish. But you know, if you led. 30 people and it was only two weeks because the lieutenant, because the platoon commander was out and you were the senior sergeant. Then you talk about the time you led 30 people, right? And I always say, uh, yeah, you know, I was just the assistant desk commander. I was kind of played it off because I didn't want to seem like I was acting like someone I wasn't, but they don't want that. They want, they want you to come out and, 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 and show a little more. So, so anyway, so I, I uh, yeah, so I, 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 I thought about the agency. I really wanted to do it. I, I tried for years, for five years total, three, three times, three attempts over five years and finally got in. And I think a lot of people take more than once. Um, probably more, more people than not take, take more than once. To get in. But that's a long way to tell you how I, how I learned about it. But, yeah. Well, and, and uh, I didn't know this until I started uh, following your account because once upon a time, and I could not tell you what book I'd read it in, but I remember hearing about the DSS probably 10 years ago or so. And I was, I was in college Um but I didn't look too far into it. Um, I I just looked into uh, into that again as as a, a different career path because I found it very interesting from reading your book and and hearing about your experiences. Uh, my wife said no; she likes where we live, uh, so <laughs> that answered that question. But uh, they only open their hiring process once per year. Yeah, that's correct. Once per year. So if you don't get it. That first time, it's important to uh, to stay with it. If it's something that you want, you're you're probably going to have to try again over the course of such you know the way that you did it over the course of several years in order to uh, to get through the gate there, so to speak. Yeah, I think I think uh, you know candidates these days are a little luckier than we were back then. There was a time where they weren't they were to open it you know once every year and a half, once every two years. Right? It wasn't always once a year. Um, I know there's talks about uh, potentially changing the once a year thing and, and doing it a little more often. Um, I can't get into too much detail, but I think that would be beneficial if you did. Uh, if you, you know, it's, it's not like any other, if any of your listeners are ever interested or if they're interested enough to hear this podcast or whatever, it's not like any other federal application. It's, it's completely different. You need to prep, you need to prepare for it. Uh, you know, when it's, it's hours, you sit down on this application and, and you could literally click submit and they say negative right there on the spot. So um, it, it's it's a, it's a beast, um, you know, but that's one of the reasons I do what I do online on, on Instagram is I try to mentor people and answer questions. I've created a couple avenues for people to pursue, to, to ask questions. And, and uh, I think it's been really helpful, I, you know, often hear from people saying thanks so much for what you're doing in the past and uh it's cool that's pretty awesome to hear you know so it's a little way to get back was there uh you'd mentioned earlier that you'd you'd kind of seen yourself being a louisiana state trooper as you were going through the state department process or going through like the federal law enforcement training center uh, were there any thoughts of like ah damn it i should have just stuck with my original plan or were you like pedal to the metal hair on fire let's go dss no, man, I drank the juice. I was, I was all about TSS. I wanted to go, I wanted to go to Iraq. Um, I 
and at one point considered MSD, which is our, our special unit, uh, decided against it later on. Uh, no, I was all about it. I, I did. I was initially assigned to the New York field office, which is apparently a great office. I've heard so many good things about it. Around that time, my dad had a heart attack. I think I put this in the book. I did put this in the book. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was recovering, and there was a, 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 a opening in Houston, so I took it. Um, and, you know, and, and I got to work with uh, some local PD, Houston PD, Harris County, um, you know, HSI, uh, uh, DRO, it's called ICE back then, ERO, DRO. Um, and, you know, I thought they had a cool gig. All the, I, I kind of look back to, man, that would have been fun to be a local PD, and it certainly gave me some good experience. Um, but, I mean, the path I took got me where I ultimately wanted to be. Um, but, no, I don't I don't think that – and only really because there's nothing for me in Louisiana. I mean, I have all my family there, but there's nothing with regard to a career uh, and raising a family that excites me too much, uh, uh, particularly about my hometown. You know, I could, I could do it elsewhere in Louisiana. But, no, I just wanted to be on the go. I'd left, and, and um, you know, at that point, I hadn't traveled too much. I'm 40-plus countries in now. And, you know, I, I like the path I took. And... and- Having uh, uh, experience, you do write about your experiences with the Houston field office with uh, uh, some some passport and visa fraud that that you guys uh, were investigating. Uh, were there ever any? Uh, I I have yet to uh, pick up a radio and and hear oh hey respond to assist the State Department. I'd probably shit myself if somebody ever said that on the radio or or called me to do it. But I I I'd like to think I'd quickly get over it. But uh, were your experiences with local u.s law enforcement fairly positive did you ever have anybody who ran i know that between local state and federal law enforcement agencies there there's a rivalry to a sense there's some you know some chest beating that that comes in really on on all sides um and there are some uh prickly demeanors towards one another um were, were your experiences generally positive? Did anything stick out where you were like, what What the hell is the matter with this patrol cop or anything along those lines? No, I had great experiences. I had great experiences with, with uh, I mean, to tell you who I didn't have great experiences with is other feds. I mean, I had great experience with uniformed law, law enforcement, state, federal, county. I mean, sorry, sorry, state, city, county. Uh, and I was in Texas. It was very pro-law enforcement, pro, you know, support each other, uh, pretty pretty hardcore. But I had no, I had really great experiences, uh, and, and and you know when they put if they put a you know a unit a task task force together, they usually send someone who's obviously interested in working with the feds and the state and everything else, and and maybe there's some personalities they pick to put in these places. But you know we had we when we did the the, the raid on that guy's house, um, you know we just had whoever was on patrol duty right came over and and we briefed them up and. And I had great experience with them. They were respectful. They supported us. And, and I remember we needed to get a, a vehicle towed. And, and, and we're like, you know, at the State Department, everything is red tape, right? But but you guys, <laughs> you said, oh, you want to get that towed, Cody? I'll handle it and call in the I think he ripped off the plates of the car because it was illegally obtained or something. Right, like, it was it. You know, we hadn't even it. Like, whatever, he, he had some type of law where he could just take the plates off. And I was like, why did that, man? Uh, so I had fantastic experiences with, with those guys. Now, I will say that I think your anyone's approach it matters, right? How you communicate with people matters. And, and you know, I, there's a couple agencies out there you guys have probably worked with that, you know, they, they, they approach you in a, in a way that they think they're better. And, and 
man, listen, I work with the State Department. <laughs> you know, we're not the most robust uh, law enforcement entity, right? Our, 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 our specialty is overseas work, you know, and, and we do, obviously, I think we do, I think we do good work in the U.S., but we, we're not well-known or, or very, a very big entity in the U.S., but and my general approach to people is being respectful and, and asking for help rather than saying this is how it's going to be, right? Because I couldn't get the job done without those guys. I, I, I don't, I couldn't, but I don't care to have only DS agents on the perimeter of a house, right? I need my local law. I need some uniform. I need some, some March cruises. Um, and so I had a great experience. I don't, I don't know if I had a bad one. Well, that's good to hear. And, and Danny, you know, any of my, uh, my fellow road pirates uh, and patrol cops that are out there, I, I know I'm a detective now, but once upon a time, not that long ago, I was a patrol officer. Uh, but when the opportunity presents itself for you to assist these other agencies, uh, jump on it. If, sure. if you have the ability to do so, absolutely. I recommend getting out there and helping out, um, you know, if for no other reason than just having that, that experience to draw from should it happen again in the future. But you can use it as a networking opportunity. Once everything's over, don't be like standing on a uh, perimeter position and try and flag down the Fed next to you and be like, hey, man, so what do you think about like, wait, use your your time wisely there but um you do talk about again in the book your your work with foreign law enforcement agencies uh specifically uh the part that stuck out to me in vietnam when you don't have that mutual legal assistance treaty uh and thank you for putting the glossary of the acronyms in the front of the book because i had to look that up just now um but uh you you did find yourself having to rely on uh, foreign law enforcement agency. Again, it's patrol cops uh, where you don't speak the same language. Um, you don't know where allegiances lie necessarily. Um, are there are there any experiences that, uh, you know, either in the book or otherwise that stand out to you where you were like, oh, that, that nearly went off the rails? Yeah, I mean, I mean this is probably a, lot, a good bit of them. Um, you know, but it depends on what you which. You know, when you're out, when you're in, in, a, in an environment like like Vietnam, right? And so Vietnam police don't carry guns. There's no guns. Um, you know, there might be some of the senior level guys who have a little pistol, but they don't carry guns. No one in Vietnam has a gun, or if they do, it's a relic, right, from the Vietnam War. Uh, those are all confiscated by the communist government. So, you know, we, I, I didn't do any like put raids with anyone or anything like that, right? It was it was more liaison effort. To, to have the local police, local security apparatus provide security for our facilities. Um, and, and, and there's a lot that goes on at, at an American facility, right? Where if you're, if you fly the American flag in a foreign country, you are the top terror, top terrorist target, right? You're a top counter and budget target. Um, and so, well, when you say off the rails, it's not like anything where we almost, you know, someone got killed, but, I did have an incident where, and I didn't talk about this in the book. I think I wrote about that. I, probably, you know, I had a blog. I wrote like, writing takes a lot of work. I wrote like two blogs. One of them was called Fire of the Diamond Plaza. And it's on my website. And, and it's, it's basically, um, you know, the, the police, uh, uh, the local security apparatus told us they're going to be conducting drills at Diamond Plaza, which is a, an off-site uh, location for uh, the U.S. consulate in Vietnam, in Ho Chi Minh City, Saigon, formerly known as Saigon. And as our public affairs officer, and we had a few other offices there that uh, that the, that had more people from the public come in, right? It's like a, the American 
Vietnamese uh, cooperation type thing where the, the kids can come in and read American books and stuff like that. So you got a good bit of the public there. Well, Diamond Plaza was a was a mall that was very uh, uh, unique uh, in 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 in, uh, in in Vietnam. It's very it's like a lot of ritzy stores. Imagine your you know, I don't know, your Versace stores and, and things like that of that nature. And when they had a food court and a movie, you know, pulling alley and movie theater. And, and so it, so it wasn't our building, basically. And, but we had a facility inside it, a suite inside it. And the police called us and said, you know, we're going to be doing some drills there. Fine, fire drills. Okay, good. And then when the day, the day came, uh, they are they, they are the day before, they told me, well, we're going to land a helicopter. Well, first off, everyone from, like, the, the, the Vietnamese government's going to be there. They have stands. They have big picture, big screens. They have actors that'll be screaming, like, like playing a role. They've hired actors to go into the building. They have all these different, um, uh, like wasted out, so slides and things to rappel down. All this, and they said they're going to use real gas and barrels on the rooftop to make smoke. And they're going to land a helicopter on the rooftop that doesn't have a helicopter pad, and it's not a small helicopter. It's one of it's it's bigger than like way bigger than a Huey. Forget what kind it was, Russian name. So I learned all this within a 24, 48 hour period. And I'm like, holy shit, this place is going down. And the Vietnamese people are great people, but they they don't always get it right. And oftentimes they get most of it right, and there's a little bit of gap there. Well, you can't miss when you have flaming gas on top of a rooftop and try to land a helicopter on top of it. That's pretty dangerous, and we have people in the building. So I had to get permission from D.C. to, to literally shut down the, the office, which is something that's very rare. It's very hard to do to shut down a U.S. consulate. Now, we didn't shut down the main consulate. We shut down that office. And so we did. We did the day of, um, and we got everyone out literally hours before, an hour before. And we went down the street. I, I went to, I have videos where I, I don't have pictures. Um, but basically, we, we put ourselves, I took my security officers out. We told everyone in the consulate, have the day off, don't come. And we watched this this uh, dog and pony show. That, like the, the fire department was, was down the road. You could see them like setting up. And then they all came in and fought this fire and saved lives. And the helicopter didn't land. It actually came to land. They realized, I got to gotta buck out, right, and go off. They took off. They didn't rescue there. They, the, the, the rotor knocked the gas over. Uh, the, the bucket over. So now you got a flame of fire. Luckily, it's all on cement and there's firemen up there that could put it out. And it wasn't a lot. It's a big bucket, but they only had the, you know, really the bottom with gas. So they went all the way crazy. But man, it went down. And, uh, you know, so to your question, did it go off the rails? You know, we were fine. Right. But the whole conflict always could have been blown to shit, right? Burned to shit. Um, <laughs> Well, those are, those are the types of things you deal with when you're working with foreign law enforcement. That we do have a unit called uh, ARSOI, so like investigators within the consulate, and they do more of the targeting of, uh, of fugitives and, and fraud cases, drug cases, stuff like that. Um, but in general, most of our agents overseas, when they work with federal law, when they work with local law enforcement, it's for security and protection type stuff, intelligence type stuff. You, you do mention the uh, uh, those ARSOIs, those uh, are like regional security officer and, and investigators. There is a, a point in your book, I, you know, and I, I 
kind of talked about it just a, a little bit, scratch the surface with some of your many interesting um, goings on while you were in Ho Chi Minh City. Um, but uh, these two cats, Mark and Ben, who were making tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars on uh, fraudulent visa paperwork and come to find out they are employed by the U.S. government. Was that a shock to the system or is that something that is unfortunately like kind of like, oh, well, this isn't the first time it's happened or, or was that completely out of left field when you've got these State Department employees who are using their powers and abilities uh, and, and then you come to find out and you end up having to put an arrest plan together for both of them and they both end up getting hooked and booked as it were. But did it did it just kind of like, what the fuck were these guys thinking or was it like, uh, unfortunately, we've seen this before? No, it's a huge deal. Not, we have, I mean, these things happen, but they're not as they're not as not as much. And if they do, sometimes a onesie twosie, right? Somebody's doing a favor for someone, and they can get in trouble, but they might not get prosecuted. This guy made millions. I think he made over nine million dollars doing it. Uh, started out uh, slow, you know, one or two, and and then he started selling pieces to 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 uh, mostly to women to come to the U.S. Uh, there wasn't a trafficking angle. We thought that initially that he was there, so got on that. Uh, but he was so Ben. Ben actually uh, was a Vietnamese American citizen. Um, so he he's from born and raised in Vietnam, but immigrated to America and got his U.S. citizenship. And he lived and had a business guy in Vietnam, charity business apparently. Um, and he met Mike, uh, and so his name his real name is Mike. I use Mark in the book, but. So he met Mike, and uh, Mike was kind of, I described him in the book, kind of a goofy guy, uh, former former cop, man, former Albany PD, former uh, uh, U.S. Marshal. Uh, he was a lieutenant commander in the Navy, intel guy, but still kind of a goofy dude. Um, and, you know, when you're trained in, in uh, when you're trained in, in, in the basics of intelligence and counterintelligence, and I don't mean offensively go and pursue intelligence, but how to defend against it or how to identify it, which is all DFA were trained in that, particularly when you go to some of these posts that have a higher level of engagement when trying to collect intelligence. You can, you, you spot one of the things that, that, that people that target, uh, one of the things they look for are outliers or, or people that could be easily manipulated by different things. In this case, easily manipulated by pretty girls. And Mike was one of those. He was tall. He was goofy. You know, he was in a position of power. Um, he wasn't well liked within our own community, uh, within the the, embassy, the consulate community. I learned, and, but you know, he started getting all this attention from girls. Now he wasn't targeted by a foreign intelligence service. He was targeted by Ben, a criminal entity. And um, and Ben, uh, you know, used to meet across the way at the coffee bean coffee shop, and and and, and Ben would give him a list of names and, and, uh, although most of them were disapproved, uh, Mark would, uh, Mike would find them and go approve them. And, uh, he would then get paid and he was making, you know, if you're going to be a criminal, be a criminal, right? He was making like five to 10, uh, uh, uh five to 10,000 on a, on a on approval. Whereas Ben was, was netting about 70,000. Uh, and, and so Ben was really making the money. He was kind of a mastermind, but, Mike was the uh, Mike was the government official, the trusted government official that was 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 doing it. So 
you know, we, uh, it was a year, it was a long investigation. I wasn't heavily involved in it. I was involved in on the periphery and some items of keeping it calm and keeping it cool and communicating. And then I was involved in the, uh, if, if you, and you did read the book, uh, obviously in the, uh, the capture of Ben. So, so Mark was in Thailand. So we had to outsource that to the Thai police and Derek, who was, who flew over there, um, to, uh, to help, Snatch Mike. They literally snatched him off the street. <laughs> that was kind of cool. I was getting updates, you know, on 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 the uh, on the BlackBerry back then, the BlackBerry phones. I was getting updates from 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 Derek. And uh, and so, but I I I got involved when all right. Now it's time to arrest Ben. And Ben was well connected. And if you're well connected in Vietnam, you can get just about anything done. You can disappear if you need to. So it was really kind of walking the line there, and, and when we should tell the local police and when not to. And fortunately, I had established some really good relationships with these guys over rice, wine, and beer, and karaoke, and uh, and they loved me. And 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 quite honestly, I really liked them. Uh, obviously, our governments don't agree so much. We agreed a lot more back then because China was being a bully in the area and we were supporting Vietnam. So that was good. But, but, you know, ideologically, uh, our governments don't really agree. But individually, um, you know, there's some of these men there that I really enjoy their company. Uh, and, you know, having a beer with them and shooting the shit with them and you realize they're not so much different than you. And, and so, and these guys are powerful, really powerful. You know, these are colonels and generals. Um, and me, you know, and GS. I was an FS4, right? FS3, FS4, so it's like a GS12 and 13. So, uh, so anyway, so we we it, it, we negotiated. Um, you know, we figured out when we would do it, how to get it done, and it's all in the book. And we ended up uh, getting Ben arrested, and, and I had to transport him back to the U.S. with uh, my colleague. Um, you know, and, and then he was taken into custody and prosecuted, and said did several several years. And I do like the the part in the book when you tell Ben straight up, like, look, I don't plan on putting you in handcuffs on this flight. I've got flexi cuffs, but you're not going to make me use them. Mark. And it, it's a, it, it's, it's interesting to see sort of a similar tactic used, no matter if you're local PD like me or, or federal, such as yourself. Generally speaking, I've always put people into handcuffs, but uh, I did have a, tr- a field training officer, you know, give me that whole, like, we kind of have to talk people into handcuffs, keep their compliance the whole way through. And and uh, and that's sort of how it seemed to me as the reader, as, as that's how you presented it to Ben was like, look, we're going to be cool with one another. It's a long ass flight. It's going to be uncomfortable in those things. Just be cool. You're not going to have anywhere to run off to like. <laughs> but also what I didn't know is that the uh, and you do talk about it within that same breath in the in the book there is that the airlines kind of dictate what you as a federal law enforcement officer, what you are able to do. And, oh, we can't have you showing up with you know, handcuffs and, and leg and belly irons or things like that. You know, we want you to, to stay cool at uh, the, <laughs> I can remember getting on a plane, uh, Phoenix to London. There's only one flight. It's a 747 uh, out of British airways. And uh, as I'm waiting to board um, towards, towards the front of the plane, uh, these dudes walk past me and, and they were federal, uh, federal agents. I can't remember what the back of their windbreakers said, uh, but they just walk this dude on in handcuffs, no less. And I'm like, well, fuck. I didn't know that was going to be on my flight. So, but you, you managed to stay kind of under the radar, right on that, that whole flight. Yeah. You know, the optics matter, uh, whenever you're with the state department, particularly when you're in someone else's country and, and going through, uh, the country of one of our 
really, really strong ally, South Korea, right? We're on Korean airlines and they're very supportive of us. It's really hard to get, uh, at least in Southeast Asia, it's really hard to get uh, criminals, you know, processed and through these other airports. But Korea is really, is a lot easier. Uh, Marshalls may have another plan, but given the scenario and the variables we had with getting uh, Vietnamese visas and everything and, and, and passing through either there or the Philippines, you know, we, it was, it was complex. So, uh, so yeah, the optics were, were one thing. Uh, the other uh, was the relationships matter with those airlines and with these countries. And, and we also, you know, the, the, we assess, you know, if he was a, a, a hardened criminal, you know, we would have, done more you know we would have put him in an ankle bracelet at least or something but he wasn't he, he, he did committed fraud and 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 uh you know i had everything i needed with me i was also you know i'm, I'm not a small guy and he, he is and neither was the other guy with me and so granted as a local pd you know small guys can pack a punch and that's fine but i was very confident in my abilities and his and not his and the way i talked to him and saw him I mean, he was defeated man he was it was over so there was kind of a lot of variables there as to why we did it that way, but the overall optic. Anytime you work for the State Department overseas, it's uh, you know it's important to consider the second and third order consequences of what happens and what's seen. Right, and we're not in our own country, and we're traveling through other countries, uh, so there's a lot to think of when you do that. Right, right. Well, and in the book too, um, I've got just the very beginning of the book here open in front of me um, because your your travels and your experiences you ended up going far beyond sort of the bread and butter uh, visa passport fraud investigations Uh, here in Arizona. If you're from Arizona, the name Kayla Mueller should ring some sort of a bell um, from, uh, from a few years back. And you did have some involvement in that. And I'd like to read a couple of these paragraphs uh, here, right out of the the preface of your book. Um, The information Relayed to me from the United Nations was that this girl was held hostage by ISIS with two other people she thought were Americans. One, we later learned, was from New Zealand. The other was described as an American lady with shoulder-length brown hair, fair skin, and only spoke English. She was from Arizona and had a tattoo on her ribcage of a feather. She was kidnapped in Syria after crossing the border from Turkey. The information sounded authentic. I needed to confirm, so I contacted FBI legal attache and her bill, Matt. Matt took the information and ran it through their missing persons database. A couple of hours later, I received a call. Cody, it's Matt. This looks legit. Where can we meet? Because the only classified space was our antiquated tactical operations center, Talk, which was about the size of a walk-in closet, I decided we'd meet in my office. Matt arrived within minutes. What you got, Matt? I asked. Matt began. Our databases show that the FBI is searching for a girl who disappeared in Syria. She was living in Turkey, crossed the border to Syria, and vanished. She fits the description of the girl you described. She's been missing since last year. Okay, so who is it, I asked. Her name is Kayla Mueller. Had you been aware at all of Kayla's disappearance prior to your crazy taxi ride through through uh, uh, Iraq there with uh, the guy who was trying to <laughs> kill you and your and your turp was trying to get him to slow down? And was it something that had even been on your radar, or was it just not until that moment and then the sort of bomb falls in your lap? Yeah, it wasn't on my radar. Uh, I, I didn't know not, nothing about it. The FBI didn't know anything about. It. I mean, they they did. The organization did, but. The guy specifically there with me, uh, the legal attaché, didn't. I imagine the agency knew about it. It was maybe not on their, you know, it was uh, probably on their agenda. But um, I know I knew nothing about it. I still get chills when I think about it. And when you read that, um, that was that was a catalyst of writing this book. Um, 
uh, just to, just to kind of show all the different things we get into and, and really to show how you know, we played a pivotal role in, uh, in, in not finding her, locating close to where she was. We, we never found her. She ended up dying. Um, but there was a lot of other stuff that came out of that, um, that I think probably saved more American lives. Um, and I, by, by no means do I want to sound like I was a door kicker. I wasn't. I was the first piece of the puzzle to talk to these two uh, Yazidi hostages, former ISIS hostages uh, that were held with Kayla Mueller. And, and I got the information that I could get, <clears throat> and I brought it back, and I gave it to the people that really do work, uh, do the good stuff. And they took and they went and interviewed them many, many times over and, and, and did, you know, uh, did all the cool guy stuff that they got to do, but you know the U.S. consulate, the State Department, and, and diplomatic security service, uh, we played a an instrumental role in getting that information, you know, and receiving it, and interviewing it, and, and passing it on. And what were you, you had multiple experiences um, in Iraq, um, but what were you know those those later days with with ISIS? Um, how did those compare to? to maybe your earlier experiences? Was there this sort of like, I mean, cause even here in the States, right? It was like ISIS is, oh, it's the boogeyman and they're gonna get you no matter where you are. Yet here you are, as you said, not a door kicker. I mean, most of most of the time you were wandering around with a Glock 17, which is the same thing I police the streets of America with. Um, but was there this, this sort of holy shit, like ISIS is at the front door or was it just sort of like, man, we learned to live with it? Yeah, no, it was holy shit there at the front door. They got to eight miles with, like, they were they were coming after us. You know, if you read the ISIS at the Gates story, and I want to say I wasn't a door kicker. Like I, you know, I wasn't going to look for high-value targets, uh, but but we were armed to the teeth at the embassy, and I, I did have my my M4, uh, and my M, and uh, we had, you know, heavier weapons. We had sniper rifles. We had a lot of stuff, uh, but we were there on defense, right? We weren't on offense, and that's what door kickers would be. So we, we were, you know, but at that time, I think we had 36 shooters, right? So maybe 60 S agents, a few Marines that weren't stood up yet. Uh, and then, um, you know, say a few, probably like five, five, six. And then we had our contractors that did the mobile security, uh, you know, high threat protection stuff. And my job there was to oversee high threat protection, uh, the protective ops. So I had a team. I think I had, at the time, I had 30 or so uh, Americans and then like 90 plus um uh, local Zervani, which are Kurds, um, and then uh, and then later that grew, you know, the American team. We ended up having like 58, but but yeah, so so they, ISIS had made it, so that they were they took uh, they took uh, Kirkuk, well they took Mosul, uh, then they took Kirkuk, and they took Kalak and Aski Kalak, and so if you know if you if you are familiar, if people want to look on a map, it's basically they're taking the uh, if I get it correct, the west and the south and a little bit of the east. And, and their targets are built. The target is the capital of the Kurdistan region, and that's where the U.S. consulate is, and we were their target. So when I got that call from my CIA colleague that said, uh, go look at your high side, and I saw all these taillights looking like a, it looked at, everyone was fleeing the city, um, I realized uh, that, that uh, you know, we were in for a long few nights, potentially the flight of our life. Um, and so we had to prepare like, like that's what we're doing. So we, you know, we started getting people on rooftops. We got the rifles out. We got the long, uh, uh, you know, we got the, the, uh, 240 Bravos on the rooftops and, 
of other assets made available. Uh, we started to prepare, uh, but yeah, no. So, so it wasn't like another thing. I eventually it became that because they got pushed back. But, but with those within those two days, that ISIS at the gate story, they got within eight miles of us. I didn't put that in the book because at the time I thought that that might have been uh, classified. So I left it to what I knew was unclassified in the news, and I think it was like fifteen or twenty miles. And I later found I forget where, but some uh, some sources that showed they were up to eight miles away. And so when you got you know hundreds of fighters and, and with technicals and vehicles and everything else coming at you eight miles away and you got 36 of you 36 shooters and 100 non-shooters might have been 100 total actually i don't know um yeah you kind of kind of concerned yourself but we pushed them back a good bit and then they remained there forever they, they until i left they, at that point to your question yeah at that point after that when they were pushed back and we reinforced the curves and we reinforced the lines and we sent U.S. military on the ground there. Um, you know, we had some some operations because because like the Yazidis people were fleeing, so we we're doing some rescue operations. I, I P.S. wasn't personally, but the U.S. government was. Um, uh, yeah, it, it, at that point it was kind of like yeah they're there. Uh, we had to we had to redo routes. We had to reconsider where we do routes, even if they weren't there anymore. We didn't know what they might have planted along the route um, and who could have been working with them. Now, granted, Kurds love us. Kurds really love Americans. Um, but, uh, but, you know, you can never be too safe. And eventually we got attacked, you know, constantly. And, uh, and not the first time you've been attacked in a consulate in, in your chapter bombs over Biden. I mean, you literally end up standing in the impact crater of uh, <laughs> indirect fire. And, you've, you know, it's this, this sort of... Uh, uh, I, for those of you that have seen Blood Diamond, they, they have that phrase, this is Africa. And at one point in time... Cody looks at his Secret Service agent who says that he just about shit himself, and he's like, well, yeah, it's Iraq. It happens. Um, but, uh, I mean, what what goes through your mind, man, when when you have, like, here you are in 2000 and uh, the bombs over over Biden when when then-Vice President Biden was, was visiting Iraq? You're like, you know, okay, holy shit, I'm standing in an impact crater. And then, you know, a few years later, you're, you're, uh, you've got ISIS at the gates, as it were. Um, and what even do you just sit there and, and go, okay, it's, it's business time. Or is there this like, Oh my God. Okay. This is like, you know, I think you touched on it. This is the fight of my life coming up. Um, but, uh, where do you go? I guess in your own headspace. Yeah. I never thought, I never thought about it like that. I mean, I mentioned that it could have been the fight of our life, but it was never a, a panic moment. It was a response, a reaction. Uh, you know, when, 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 when indirect fire starts hitting, you know, you, you don't have time to not react, right? You could, we could freeze, uh, but even, uh, and some people do, you, you'll see that on the compound. We had a high level DS agent that just froze. I think he froze or he fell, he tripped. We had, people had to grab him and pull him into a bunker. Um, but no, I never, I never really had a problem performing in those situations. I didn't see them as huge deals. I mean, I, I did later when someone, Pull it after me like that. Well, you can't fight back against indirect fire, man. If it's your time, it's your time. It's all right. Well, that's fair. You know, that could that could hit you pretty good, and, and it did. It hit it hit the compound often. Uh, it missed us more often than not, but they did shoot at us four or five times a week. Um, and uh, and so you know, we just responded in those cases. I never really felt concerned too much because they didn't miss a lot. You know, you're always when you're walking in the Baghdad compound, you're always a generally. 
you know, 100 yards or less, probably a lot less, to, to some type of hard structure. And, and, and usually the duck and cover would, would, would catch the, the mortar, right? We'd catch it before it, uh, it came in. So, you know, we, we would, we would, the alarm would sound and we would know before the first impact. This time they, they shot it right across the river is what we ended, ended up learning. And they shot it under the radar. So you literally hear it swoosh by your head. And I say by your head, it's 30 feet above. I don't know how far above, but above. But you don't hear the radar, the, the duck cover. So at that point, it's like, you know, uh, we got to move. And luckily, uh, the guy with me, the DEA agent, was a former mortarman in the Marine Corps. So when it hit, he's like, oh, yeah, that's more you know, hit. That's close. That's by the Marine House. And, and uh, so we ran over there to take care of it. For the ISIS thing in Erbil, uh, no, you know, well, when I, when the ISIS, the, the, the more disconcerting was the one we just talked about, I said, the gates, because we had so much time to process what could potentially happen. And I don't, I don't you know, there were embassy employees that learned about it, and, like, one lady sent an email across the net, I say the net, but the email across the consulate. And the, 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 the tone of the email was, like, they're coming over the walls. And she didn't say those words, but that's how it felt. And we're like, oh, shit. I, the security leaders there, six of us, and you know, a boss, a deputy, and, and the rest of us, um, that's not what you want. Now you got a nervous populace on your hands, right? Nervous Americans that are panicking and they want to know, and, and really you're trying to prepare to defend this compound. And, uh, you know, and you don't have time uh, to, you know, I don't think I was ever, ever showed any nervousness, but I mean, it just, I think anyone that didn't say they were a bit concerned uh, based on the intel and what we saw outside the gates was happening with, would be acting too much like a tough guy. We were we were all pretty concerned. Um, I don't think scared is the word, um, although I wouldn't judge people if they were. Uh, it just was, for, for some reason, I, I did always feel, it was in the back of my head, and I was concerned, but I always felt like they'll stop this advance before they get to it. And they did. They ended up doing it. They, as in the U.S. government, did it. Dropped some bombs on them in the mor- uh, one morning, set them back pretty good, uh, really good. So, uh, and then of course the, the time of the attack, you know, when these things happen, um, and I mean, you're, you, you patrol the streets, right? When something happens, you just, you respond, you react, the training kicks in, you know, I think local cops, you guys deal with, uh, things that are related to your training much more than we had to at an embassy, right? We train and train and train for a terrorist attack. Well, how often the terrorist attacks happen, right? You know, when you're a high threat terrorist country, it could, but it still might be one every six years. You guys train every day, you know, you, you train and train and you see this stuff, stuff every day that could potentially happen. So but basically what I'm saying is when you train so hard and the teams are ready and prepared, we run these drills and the real game time happens, you know, we all responded with partial excitement. We were excited. So we're, ready, we're ready to get down, you know, um, and have our have our piece of the action. And, and, um, and so, you know, we, we did. We did. We took our positions and. And did what we had to do that day. So my mindset was this has never been an issue uh, of mine. I, I tend to brush this all off like it wasn't a big deal or people have been much more than myself or military or elsewhere. But, but you know, we had some fun. There were some things that went on. Yeah. Yeah. No, you, I mean, you, you hit the nail on the head, right? That like, as a, as a city cop, as a, or anybody who patrols, like you, you should always be a, you should always be thinking of, of these various um, 
scenarios that might happen, you know, and you, you hit a traffic light. Okay, well, what's going to happen if the dude in front of me jumps out with a gun or something along those lines? But you, and maybe not to that extreme, but you do live those scenarios. They play out in real life over and over and over again. And every every time that you successfully walk away from something, uh, I would hope that that every officer is treating that as a training evolution. You know, at the end of it, you you debrief it and go, okay, what went right, what went wrong. And again, there there, I had a I had one of my sergeants explain it to me after um, this uh, this like massive shooting. Um, no, no cops fired any bullets, but there were like four hundred rounds thrown towards us by one really angry dude. Um, and uh, I had a supervisor tell me, you know, hey, because he and I were talking about it. Uh, just recently that guy just got sentenced and I was frustrated with the, uh, with the, with the sentence that he was given. Cause I will still be a cop when he gets out. Um, and he fucking tried to kill a lot of my friends. So, um, but he was like, you know, there's, there's a, a point in every, you know, people who work this job, these, these type a personalities, these, you know, Hey, we're going to, we're going to go out and we're going to get after it. There is this feeling that may sound crazy. It may sound like bullshit to people on the outside, but you want to be tested. You want to be to, to be able to, to go, Hey, okay, look like everything that we've trained for and, and this solid team, like, look at what we're fucking capable of. Um, and I, I, I think that, that you guys, you know, had that experience there, uh, multiple times over. Um, I, I am curious though, with, with your DS career spanning the time that, it, that it did and with so much happening within those years, um, DS agents were on the ground in Benghazi. What, what was the sort of uh, what 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 impact did that have on on you and and sort of the general uh, you know the the locker room talk or coffee coffee break talk as it were without without giving away the keys to the castle I know that there were probably some things that came from that 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 aren't to be discussed but I am curious just to know you know what what your thoughts were and and what you guys took away from that. Yeah, so I mean, at the time I was pretty far removed from it. I was in Vietnam, Ho Chi Minh City, with one other DS, two other DS agents, and and uh, and so when you're not with like a field office or headquarters where you're around of a bunch of DS agents, talk about that and everything going on. But the feeling I got, you know, there's some communication about it, and, and um, you know, what, that what we heard was that you know the, the teams there weren't very well supported. That um, you know uh, the head RSO uh, Eric. Uh, asked for support and assets and he was not taken seriously. Um, and that's all frustrating. Uh, you know, we, when 13 hours came out, you know, we heard a couple of DSAs were injured um, severely, not only, you know, one, I think one of the leg injury, one had some lung uh, issues. Um, and so, you know, we were obviously concerned for them. Uh, what I learned later is that those are some good dudes. Uh, they weren't, I think they were, were newer agents and, and they had a little more, uh, uh, a couple of them had military experience, but they, but they were newer. And I, and I, I always thought, you know, we, we send people, we, we say all the DSAs are trained the same once you send them through high threat courses. We're just not the same. Yeah, you're all trained the same. We all got passed. Some people, they look the other way and they pass things. But I feel like you really needed some people with some experience in a combat zone to have been there. And I don't, I'm pretty sure that wasn't the case for all of those that were, that were on there and the on the ground in Benghazi, um, and so we're frustrated with that because it happens a lot. They send they send people to these high threat locations with no experience in a in a in a high threat zone, and you can do that. You can incrementally send someone to a space where all right, first they're going to be on the compound, and the next time they go, they might go outside the wire. The next time they go, or you can get them to where they need to be, but just throwing them in Benghazi like that was 
It's just not a good decision. And But I don't recall being upset with ES leadership. Well, let me not say that. I don't recall being upset with uh, kind of the mid-level leadership because it sounds like they wanted the right thing, but there were a couple people with DS at the top that that might not have uh, made the right decision. Uh, and I say might not have because I don't know 100% for sure. Uh, I didn't read the full report. Um, but, you know, but for me on a personal level, when we got, not to bring it back to the ISIS at the gate story, but... Um, we realized that ISIS was going to be there a long time. And so I ended up reaching out to our CIA colleagues um, and talk about the location in the book. And just so happens that my, I have two liaisons. I have one that's an Intel liaison that gives me the Intel I need to pass to my group to, to pass to all the DS agents. So I had, I had the best uh, por- portfolio of programs when I was, a, when I was uh, in, in Erbil. I led a protective ops team, uh, high threat protection. I was the, the liaison to the CIA, liaison to the, the task force, which is every letter agency and, and the cool military dudes did the cool stuff. Uh, and so, and so uh, I, I got to, and I was personnel recovery, which is why I got to go fly out and read to, you know, meet the people that met Caleb Mills. So I had some good responsibilities. So, but what I did was, so I had my Intel uh, 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 person liaison for CIA uh, that would give me the Intel. And we'd communicate back and forth on what, what we needed. And then I had a security guy that was like, you know, uh, liaison with me when his team came onto the compound and what, what we needed to do. And he and I met, he just so happened to be a former Marine as well. He's a recon Marine, good, good dude. And we, we sat down the first day that we met and we're like, Hey, I said, I, I want to develop some type of plan with you guys. I'm not asking you to come rescue us, but I do want some type of communication. Uh, you know, to, to see what we could do. And previously, there was not a good relationship with us and them uh, at the higher levels, and there was no relationship at my level. And so anyone that listens to my YouTube videos, my podcast, I always talk about how relationships matter, building relationships matter. And so me and this guy um, started, first day, I gave him a radio. So here, take this radio, bring it to your talk. I'll tell the boss later, like, it's an expensive radio, right? <laughs> but just take it to your talk and we'll do checks. We'll do checks like once a day at, at this time and then we'll do a random check. We figured out a plan, comms plan. And so that was the first step in the right direction. And we ended up, he and I, because of what happened in Benghazi, had the foresight to say, Roger that, let's build a plan to evacuate to your location and some contingency plans to where we might want to go and what we can do and how you can support us and how we can support you. And so... I think Benghazi, not to say, I don't know if I would have thought of that before. I'm sure I would have just being a military guy. Um, but that certainly lit a fire under me uh, when Benghazi happened. And then within two weeks, I hear that ISIS is eight, eight, eight miles away. So. Yeah. Yeah. I, I Again, I'm, I'm looking at it from the outside and I, I don't have anywhere near the experience levels that, that you do. I've uh, been a city cop for, for five years. Uh, I was never in the military, but it, it seems as though Benghazi was, what was it? It was a, what do they call it? A diplomatic mission. Uh, so there was no Marine security detail there. It was the DS agents uh, for, you know, for the ambassador. And then it was that, uh, I forget how many uh, members of the CIA's global response staff were, were ultimately there. But that was really about, like, you had a limited number of, of agency uh, support personnel as well. Um and I can see where where the frustration with you know higher level leadership might come in when repeatedly um, and it's documented 
the the movie touches on it, but it's documented within the book um, where repeatedly these requests for assistance, requests for additional material and support is is just denied, denied, denied. Hey, we want ISR capabilities. No. Hey, you know, you've got the uh, the Air Force over in, I think, Vincenza, Italy or something like that. Not that far of a flight across the Mediterranean Sea. This, that's not that big of a, of a body of water uh, to get from southern Italy to to northern Africa. No, we're not going to do that either. So it, it just seems as though there was a, uh, uh, you know, doomed to failure through no fault of their own. Again, it just comes from from higher order leadership. But uh, um, you do talk about, you know, the, yeah, and, and, and go, like, go ahead, go ahead. I'm sorry to cut you off, Kevin. Yeah, no, and, and to, to your point, you know, I wasn't uh, so frustrated with DS leadership. There are a couple in there, but yeah, higher level government leadership, I was absolutely frustrated. I think we all were. Like, we could have, doesn't take much to, to send, you know, uh, ISR assets or whatever it is they requested to, to, to get them out there. And that's what that's what you pay these guys to do, right? Those of us who join the military join for a reason. Right? We don't join to just do our four years. If you do, then that's fine. Do your four years. But most of us, particularly those in combat arms jobs, uh, you know, you join to, to, to do some real work. Um, and, and it was, yeah, that was, that was a frustrating piece to it that, that they didn't get the support they needed. And, and um, you know, I think just a, I think there's just so much politics still now in, in, in decision. Like if we made this decision, how would it impact us on whatever politically or on the world stage? And, and sometimes you just got to go save American lives. And I don't feel like that was put at the forefront. Well, and with that, I mean, we'll, we'll take a, uh, sort of a steep departure now and kind of come up into, uh, the present time talking about the, the need and the necessity to preserve, uh, American lives overseas. Um, there are still Americans in Afghanistan. I'm curious to just get your take again with, with your, I'm going to call you a, a, an expert in, in global affairs. Um, uh, uh, to me, that's, that's exactly what you are with, with your wealth of knowledge and experience. But what's your take on on that departure from Afghanistan, man? I mean, there's there's a ton of people saying, oh, well, Trump was already going to pull out of Afghanistan. It's like, yeah, that may be true. But ultimately, the buck stops with the with the person in charge at the time, the commander in chief in charge at the time. I mean, it's it's really on, on that level. It's no different than if I am the lead investigator to, to a, a felony case or, or what have you, and somebody assisting me with that investigation you know, uh, uh, where a bad call is made, ultimately the buck stops with me. I, I am accountable for that because I'm the lead investigator. That is me really boiling it down to a, a very narrow level. But a lot of people, again, want to protect President Biden's reputation, if you will, and blame Trump when, in fact, I mean, it happened after the inauguration, like, uh, you know, kind of who's who's really in charge and who's got the ability to say who, what, when, where, why and how and go what are your thoughts on, on the departure from Afghanistan? And then, and then we're going to get into Russia and China. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Well, I think it was poorly done, obviously. Uh, I, I mean, I don't know if it was a better superlative to use than just awful execution. Um, I, you know, and, and there's some smart people that, that, that lead these organizations, uh, at least we think, but, but are they, are they being listened to? Are they being heard? And, and that's that's a concern that I have. Or or, or, or do they have the intestinal fortitude? We use that term in the Marine Corps to to tell the higher ups this is what's going to happen. Uh, and and if you you know if you don't um, if we don't do this, then you know the worst could happen. So 
Yeah, I think it was awful execution. I don't know from the from the State Department diplomatic security standpoint. I'm not. I wasn't there. I have to think that they were they did the best with the resources they had. Um, I, I think as a, from a general strategic standpoint, uh, just from my thoughts, were that we you should have always maintained Bagram. You should have always maintained the perimeter uh, and support for local Afghan army around around Kabul. Uh, and, and begin extracting people sooner rather than later, even providing air support if there were going to be a Taliban, you know, movements towards Kabul, uh, you know, destroy, destroy anyone that does it. Like, we're not your friends. We weren't the Taliban's friends. We're trying to act like we're their friends. And we were still in charge. We're still the big stick around. And we didn't. We just collapsed. And we didn't support the Afghan army. Now, granted, the, whatever president they had just fled, just left. But uh, from a from a strategic standpoint, just from my I'm outside looking in. I'm just I'm a, I'm a, I'm a nobody, I'm just a regular civilian these days. But you know, if I had a strategy, if I if I'm in the military and I have a platoon, I have a strategy. I'm going to maintain my perimeter as long as I can to do what I have to do behind that perimeter before I begin pulling people back, before I begin collapsing that perimeter. Right? Whether that's destroying aircraft, destroying classified information, getting people out. And I'm going to reinforce that perimeter if I have to, to maintain that so that we can do what we have to do behind. And that to me just seems like basic strategy, you know, football strategy, right? <laughs> you know? Right. Protect like what's behind the line of scrimmage. You know, it's not, it's not really that complex. Um, as for, uh, you know, the, the, the larger 30,000 foot view, you know, we failed. We look like we look like cowards and incapable in a lot of people's eyes, including Putin and Xi and, and other other adversaries. Um, you know, you mentioned uh, Trump's plan. I don't know it. I know he had a plan to move out at a certain time. I think there were stipulations to that, though, is what I hear, that, that hey, they, they had to meet these certain stipulations for that plan to be executed. And that makes sense to me. Um, and, and there's no reason that Biden couldn't have done the same thing. But once again, we get into politics and, you know, one side blames the other. And it's always going to be that. Once side you fail, you fall. I try to be fair and say, well, you know, both sides blame the other side for whatever reason. But in this case, to your point, you are the man at the head of the man in charge. And it's just a lack of leadership on you and anyone else that doesn't take, you know, that fails to take responsibility in this and and what hurt what hurt the most i think for military folks and my wife asked me this said why you know why is it you know why does it hurt more that, that these 13 are killed and she didn't say it in an insensitive way she just wanted because i was really upset about it um and a lot of people were and so well you know when when you when you're when you're in combat these guys are in combat and, and something happens to their friends you know they still have the opportunity to enact some revenge to go get the people that did it they're still in the fight still ongoing you know, and, and there's some type of closure, I think, to be able to do that. And and with this, we were literally, one, we were pulling out. Uh, if we did it properly, we probably wouldn't have needed those guys and girls out there that far uh, beyond the perimeter. Might not even need them there at all. Um, and, and so, and they were just there doing a job. I don't even think they were all combat arms folks. I think they were just out there, you know, standing security, standing opposed. And, and they got killed. And guess what? We're not going to get them back. We're going to just continue to stick our tail between our legs and leave. And, and then, and then this is something that is way overlooked and never talked about because again, of the conspiracy of the media is, 
is that they went, you know, uh, the current administration said they went and they bombed, you know, these terrorists. They got the people that did it. It ends up being a, a group of USAID workers. And it just disappeared, right? And so no one has still has not paid for that, right? I, I think they, well, we got the, who did we get recently? The ISIS leader? Okay, I forget. We got someone recently, but it's like, you know, that wasn't, that wasn't what was needed at the time. And no one owned up to those mistakes. You know, he, uh, at the top level, they say, yeah, but it's, uh, yeah, that's on me, but, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with saying, hey, listen, I fucked up. I fucked up. I'll do better next time and I'm going to do this to fix it. Um, but, you know, that's just not the state of our po- politics. And that's on both sides. And I might absolutely people and I don't, uh, uh, on both sides, our political leadership on both sides, uh, have, uh, most of them, uh, you, you know, you got some good, some good, uh, congressmen out there these days, I think, that are trying to do the right thing, but they are held to the party standards, right? And it's another thing, I, it's another topic, but, uh, I think, uh, leadership is lacking in politics. But I feel like, you know, maybe we're starting to see it. We're starting to see some, uh, people looking to run on, on the, uh, uh, that are, that are trying to do the right thing and, and more of the quote unquote common man, right? Someone that's hardworking, maybe blue collar folks, military folks running for office. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. Arizona's got, uh, uh, got a former seal running, uh, not, not in my district. I think he's down in Tucson, but, uh, uh, I mean, well, and from your, my, my, uh, my little, uh, bitch fest moment here is to say that, uh, uh, I, as a police officer am held to a higher standard than the people who make the laws for this entire fucking country, uh, because it's on me to say, Hey, I fucked up. Uh, and if I don't do it, I had better be called on it and I had better be receptive to it. Otherwise I've got no business being a police officer anymore. And these politicians that are, you know, beating their chests and saying that, oh, well, cops need to be held accountable are, as you said, they're, hey, we're going to go get the people responsible for the, oh, shit, we just killed like 15 non-combatants that had nothing to do with any of this. Anyway, sweep that under the rug and move on. Um, oh, hey, six servicemen and women for this country gave their lives uh, in the process of, of this fucked up exit from Afghanistan. Oh, okay, well, let's just move on from that. And there's no... There's no true sense of, of ownership uh, to to anything that happens anymore. And again, on both sides of the aisle. But I, from your in your opinion, with your background, the withdrawal from Afghanistan was the period to a very long, a twenty year long sentence. Um, how does that affect the United States' capabilities and reputation abroad? given that here we've just fought this war for 20, you know, a little more than 20 years. Uh, and then I, I, I continue to draw parallels through history because I am a, a, a student of history. And Charlie Wilson said of uh, the, the, uh, the Soviet withdrawal in Afghanistan and, and the U.S.'s subsequent failure uh, in Afghanistan in the late 80s and early 90s to continue to assist the people uh, uh, to con- continue to assist the the people of Afghanistan. Uh, you know, we did all these things. They were great and amazing things. Um, we did them all for a purpose, and then we fucked up the end game. And I'm pretty sure that, that that's kind of what just happened uh, in Afghanistan. But how does that affect us moving forward on the world stage? 
Yeah, well, well, a couple things there. I think one, uh, how, how it affects us within Afghanistan is, is our ability to garner intelligence and strike effectively when necessary. This over the horizon thing is just not something that's it's useful. Uh, it can be useful in some ways, but it's uh, but we saw with the strike on the civilians that it, it's it's not a capability that uh, we should rely on solely, right? We should rely on people. And I, I'm I'm not saying that we should have full contingent of forces on the ground at all times, but I don't know if there's any issue maintaining some type of presence there. You know, again, we serve for a reason. If, if a guy came into to, to special forces. And did a, a six-year tour and never got to see a combat zone, he probably wouldn't be very fucking happy about it. I mean, and and and, and so I'm not saying that, that, that I want to go to war or keep war, that, that those guys want to, but they want to, they train for a job, they want to be able to have the opportunity to do that job. So leaving some people, you know, support units, intel units, uh, uh, obviously special operations in, in Afghanistan to, to, to give us a more, more capabilities of garnering intelligence and striking our adversaries more Efficiently, I think is a was only because because maintained um, on the world stage. I think it showed American uh, well one lack of strategic planning um, uh, weakness uh, in that um, one we, we you know they, they were claiming the success of getting a hundred thousand people out. Yeah, that's a logistical success, great. But what about the, all the ones you left? What about all the pre-planning before? What about uh, the people that were killed? Um, and it, it also, I think it showed that we don't have the guts right now because of politics to really stand up to anyone in the world. Um, and, you know, I'm not, I'm not a, uh, you know, people want to use the term warmonger or isolationist. You got to be one of the other. I'm neither, I, but, I, but I do think we serve as a counterbalance to other, what we consider evil ideas in the world. And, and right now they see us as weak. And as I tell my friends, like, well, you know, how would you, I'm not supporting anything Putin does or his ideology or this trumped up, uh, you know, uh, information or, or things that he's saying to, to, to have a pretext to war with, with Ukraine. Um, but imagine if they put, you know, a Cuban Missile Crisis. Imagine if they put, quote unquote, defensive weapons in Cuba. Or if they had a, built a strategic relationship uh, in uh, El Salvador and then Panama and then Mexico, and they and they get you know now all of a sudden they're on our border and they want to put weapons there, we'll, we probably want to take some action too, right? Um, and I think that right now that they think that they can do that, they can get something out of us. Um, I think I say they as in our primary adversaries, China and Russia. Um, and there's a lot of variables there, right? There's a lot of nuance to this, and people don't like to see nuance these days. No one likes nuance. They are, China's bad, Russia's bad, China's good, Russia's got, I don't know, uh, you know, <laughs> but there's a lot of nuance here. Trade, obviously, with China, uh, uh, and uh, Russia has taken a lot of impact on petroleum and energy, um, and there's a lot of uh, other variables there. So I just think that they stay, they, in, on the world stage, again, to your question, um, that we are seen as much weaker than we have been before. Um, and I don't know if they saw that with, with Trump. I don't know if they saw that with Obama. I don't know if they saw that with Bush. Um, maybe they did. Maybe they thought it wasn't the right time. Uh, but I feel like right now, after 20 years of war, America's tired of war. Um, 
you know, uh, we've lost a lot of men and women. We feel defeated in a lot of ways uh, just because of the way we left Afghanistan and didn't feel like we finished the job. Um, the economic impact it's had, the current in, in economic impact we're having on inflation and supply chain that, that, you know, partially is part of COVID and partially is part of policy um, and, and a lot of other things. I think policy has more to do with it than anything else or just as much as, as the pandemic. Um, but yeah, we're just weakened. We're weakened. And, 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 and uh, I don't know where we stand as a military, military funding and where we stand in our readiness, um, but it, it doesn't seem that we are uh, as capable and ready as we had been in, in previous years. Um, additionally, I think our focus in the military uh, is, 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 is in the wrong place. I think our targeting of people to join the military is in the wrong place. By that I mean, you know, these commercials you see of, of uh, you know, you see Russian and, and Chinese commercials showing snipers and hardcore dudes trying to get after battle. And, you know, uh, we're using cartoons to attract people. Um, and I just don't, and, and, and I think anyone that should want to serve should be able to serve. That's how I feel. Uh, and I think that if, you know, we should not go into a volunteer force. I don't want to get too deep into all this, but I do think that we need to really reassess and reevaluate what the military is. I didn't see it wasn't for me. It wasn't a social thing, right? I got to have some time on the weekends here and there, but I signed up for four years, ended up doing a little, little less than five. But for four years, I gave up my life to go perform and to be combat ready. And that's what the military is for. And anyone that joins and continues to extend every four years and stay on, that's what your focus should be. And everything else is secondary. And I don't feel like that's where the focus is. Yeah, I mean, it's, again, I, I wasn't in the military, so I can't really speak to a lot of that. But I do think that, uh, uh, as you said, the, the focus should be on on maintaining that that presence. We, we It's a far departure from the recruiting commercials that I remember seeing, in, you know, in the early 2000s of, of these, uh, you know, the, the green camouflage faces coming out of the surf break with a knife between their teeth and you know, nothing, nothing to them, but, but some rope to climb up a cliff and a suppressed handgun and they're, they're ready and off to the races. Uh, the Navy a few years ago had that commercial life, Liberty and the pursuit of all who threaten it. And then that was like, Oh no, no, the optics are bad. Fuck that. That's exactly what I want the Navy to do. I want you to know that if you fuck around with American citizens or American assets, or you want to screw with our economy overseas, that there's like four acres of, of us justice in the form of a fucking aircraft carrier that can be up your ass at any given time. Um, but again, I, I, and I probably sound a lot like a, a warmonger there, but, but I understand that we need to know as American citizens what we want from our military. Just as I always say that America needs to decide what it wants from its police force. Um, do you want your cops to go out yeah. and be social workers and coddle everybody? Um, well, we've tried that. And now you've got these massive crime increases in, in not even just major cities anymore. My own city where I work overall crime has trended down, um, for one reason or another, but violent crime has skyrocketed between homicides and robberies and, um, you know, gang related activity and that sort of stuff. And again, I think that, that when you treat the military as this, like, 
oh, let's think of all the other ways in which we can leverage our military. No, your military is a fighting force to protect the country, right? That that's what its job is, and to assist our allied nations. Um, with with that, um, and I, I I don't want to take up too much of your time because there's there's still so many things I want to talk to you about, man. It's like I gotta I gotta bring you on for a few episodes, <laughs> but Russia. Um, I do want to take some time to talk about Russia and Ukraine and then China and Taiwan as well. Uh, I mean, Russia's been really, they've been in Ukraine, little green men, right? Have been in Ukraine, uh, no flags on their uniforms. No, no, we're not the Russians. No, we're not the droids you're looking for. They've, they've been in, in, um, the Crimea since 2014, um, something like 17,000 people are, have died in this war. And that's exactly what it is. Um, but for the longest time, I mean, President Biden is 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 very much beating the drum of, hey, Russia's going to invade at any given day. Putin is, again, this chess master who's saying, no, 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 no. I don't know what you're talking about. We're, we're not going to invade Ukraine. Oh, no, no. The, we're just doing military drills with Belarus on Ukraine's northern border while I have 150,000 troops on the eastern border. But that's completely unrelated. Um, but I mean... I can't remember if it was on. I can't remember who said it. It may have been may have been you that was sort of watch for what happens when the Olympics are over. Um, are are we days away from what could very well be the opening stages of World War Three? Did it already fucking start back in 2014 and we just haven't been paying attention? Or is this all just some massive game that that the Russian government wants to play? Or is it something completely different? Man, if I had that answer, I'd be a billionaire. You probably wouldn't be talking to me. You'd be on Elon Musk's spaceship getting the fuck out. So, <laughs> The only person that knows is Putin and, and potentially some of his closest, uh, you know, his closest team members. Um, I don't know. There's a lot, there's, you know, there's, there's a lot, there's a lot there. Um, he's, he's, he wants, you know, number of things he wants, wants, Ukraine to never be allowed to be in the NATO. He wants you know, some of our rockets moved from uh, uh, from the area. Um, he he is trying to establish, you know. So if you, yeah, I know you you know history. So the, I think it's the Warsaw Pact. Happened, you know, was was kind of NATO was created to counterbalance basically the, the, the Warsaw Pact, where former Eastern Bloc countries were together, all the same ideology, all former Soviet countries, and, and NATO was created to counter that. Well, mm-hmm. over the years. Each of those countries kind of toppled and and uh, you know and, and became more democratic, more westernized, and more friendly with the West. And many of them have become members of NATO. So Putin tends to feel us uh, moving moving in on us. The, the thing is, and so I, I think he wants to get back to that. Um, and I think he also wants to have a pro uh, Ukrainian president, uh, pro Russian president. Uh, and, and administration at the top there, and he doesn't like. He wants to have it like he has Belarus, uh, which which uh, is obviously pro, very pro Russian. Some of these other uh, uh, former Central Asian Soviet countries, former Soviet countries are in Central Asia. So so, but there's a lot of consequences that he needs to face. Not only him, but the world will face, and, the, and even if we're at the world faces it. You know, uh, they're going to get impacted. And then if we specifically, we as in the U.S. and, and the world specifically target uh, the Russians and the Russian government, it's, gonna, it's not going to be good for them. It's not going to be easy for them and their country 
you know, for for Russians to to, to live, uh, you know, with, whether it's inflation, which they've been suffering from for a number of years, call, rising costs, or you know, you name it. Um, so it won't be easy. So I, I think he knows that he he's a smart guy. I, I mean, he's outsmarted a lot of people, uh, and and he's 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 uh, he's very strategic. In and I said this in a post. He has the luxury of you know, strategic long-term thinking, which we can all have as nations, but he has the, the luxury of strategic execution, long-term execution, meaning he's been in power for so long that his long-term plan that he put in place 20 years ago is beginning to come to fruition or it's happening. Same thing with President Xi. We, and this is not knocking our democracy, uh, you know, our republic, I think we, should, we do it the right way. But once again, if we don't get back to some middle grounds where we start agreeing on some major objectives, particularly foreign policy, national security, national defense objectives, our long-term strategy continues to take a back seat, right? Continues to take a step back. So you, you have your Iranian nuclear deal, whether you agree or want it or not, right? You go on one side of the Iranian nuclear deal. Okay, we did this. No, take it back. No, we go back to it, right? And that's just one example. Um, and I'm sure your listeners could would know where I stand on that, but... The point is, can we find some freaking ground in the middle where we can look to our strategic long-term objectives together and and have a, a path forward that we don't take two steps forward, three steps back? And that's what we're doing. They're not. So he's, again, long-term, 20 years or so, he's been executing this plan. And, and let me tell you, if you, ever, if you know Russian history, it sounds like you do, you know history in general. Same thing with, uh, with Asian history. Is long-term strategic, long-term thinking is what gets you through it, and they're and they're good at it, and and uh, and we are just not there as a nation right now. And, and again, this is why I think we need to really need to consider what's important, thinking long-term, thinking of ourselves. Right, we all want to live our own lives, but but thinking of what's important to us, and when we elect leaders, you know, elect them uh, that that will work with others so that we can advance the ball forward keep us all safer. Um, did that answer your question? Yeah. Yeah, no, it, it, it did. I, I mean, it's, there's that adage and I think it came out of Afghanistan. Um, uh, but it's, it's appropriate when you talk about somebody who has had the longevity, uh, like, like Vladimir Putin, where, uh, um, you know, he's looking at America saying you've got the watches, but I've got the time, um, and, and maintains that capability of, of really just kind of riding it out. And, and he's, uh, I don't think you could ever say he can't keep his eye on the ball, right? To just break it down Barney style like that. I mean, he he knows what he wants, and he he knows it's going to take a while to get there. Um, the The concern that I've had is that uh, the Chinese premier and 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 the Chinese government is first of all we have allowed them economically to just bitch slap us uh, to no end. Um, I mean, everything that you order on Amazon is damn near got a made in China stamp on it. You know, I just got something, I think two things from Amazon the other day um, that are both not in, not even made in this country. Um, you've got even American comp companies um, who, who love to say, oh, made in the USA, uh, or then you look at it and it's like, well, the parts are sourced in the United States and then we ship it to China for manufacturing because you can, uh, there's, there's not much there to be said for like a, a good working environments and so you can have a, a complex device built for a dollar a day or something like that and i get it it's all it's all numbers but 
if Russia were to make a move on Ukraine, what is there to stop China, who makes incursions into Taiwan's air defense zone daily just for the hell of it? Taiwan's a very small country, very small island nation with very limited resources, uh, a stone's throw from mainland China. The concern that I have is uh, I believe that the Japanese government has sworn to defend Taiwan. And then we, uh, you know, us and Australia um, and other countries have this whole um, treaty with with Japan saying, you know, you go, we go type of thing. And so it it really does seem as though this house of cards is really what we're sitting on and all it's going to take you, you, you so much as brush against one and it's just a bad, bad day all the way around. What are your thoughts on, on what's going on with China and, and Taiwan? Yeah, I think the goal is to bring Taiwan back under the flag of China or under the flag of China. Um, you know, they did it in Hong Kong. They're still doing it in Hong Kong. They, they, they didn't do it by force. They did it slowly, strategically, getting people in the right positions to slowly take away, you know, their ability to, uh, I don't know, start a business, communicate, uh, you know, say what you want to say on, on in public uh, or, or uh, you know, freedom of speech, these types of things. And I think eventually, uh, you know, in Taiwan, that's that's their end goal. Now, I think with Taiwan, because it is an island, it's not connected. Uh, um, it, they, they're going to have, they, they may have to, and Taiwan is was quite different than Hong Kong and its independence, right? And, and it's claimed independence. Uh, whereas Hong Kong was, I forget, Hong Kong was complicated. Let's just say that was the relationship with China. Um, but I, I, I think that that's their end goal is to get there uh, and have them fall on the Chinese flag and how they do it. You know, I, I don't think they need a, a, I don't think they need, you know, for the, the Taiwan, uh, the Taiwanese military or, or Japanese military, whoever's defending them to make a mistake and, you know, pop off an aircraft that flies over. Um, I think the Chinese can just make something up similar to what, what we think the Russians are doing now. And, and that's, that's something I do agree with, with, what the administration is saying is they're probably setting up some fake pretext to do this. Uh, I, I tend to trust our intelligence agencies to a point. I know they've failed us in the past, but uh, knowing Russian history and, and Putin and, and the things he's done in the past that have been proven, uh, that's, that's kind of what I think. So I think the Chinese can do something similar. They're very powerful in that regard. And our response to them would, would, would it's going to, be strategically different than than uh, than Russia. I mean, we are much more dependent on China than we are on Russia. Now. I mean, there's still some dependencies, codependencies, either way, with both countries and us. But you know, our our we we are a capitalist nation. In some ways, it's our downfall in that we decided we want to be super rich and make a lot of money and give consumer goods at a at a, a good price for for us, the consumer. And so, I think there's a lot of good things that come out of that. But when you do that, now you're dependent on this country that is an adversary, you know, I feel like there's better places we can do this. We'll probably do it in somewhere in, in, in uh, Latin America where we could use trucks to come back. Maybe it won't be as cheap, but it'll still be somewhat cheaper. I, I know countries that, that manufacture some of, I know companies that manufacture some of these South American uh, countries. And, you know, I think it's, it's, it's helpful for a number of reasons. Um, but just, yeah, we were so dependent on China. Um, I think our response will be different, has to be different. I don't know what that should be. I don't get paid to know what that should be. Just like I don't know the answer if Russia's going to invade. Uh, you know, um, but uh, it's it's certainly something to watch. But 
I think, you know, that's the end goal is that they want, that China wants Taiwan to be their issue and to own that space of the sea, of the South China Sea, East China Sea, where I forget, I always miss, miss those terms up. But yeah. Well, I, I want to take the last 10, 15 minutes or so and, and, uh, I know that we've been talking about you, but we've been talking about your experiences and, and, and your wealth of knowledge. Um, but you've you've mentioned it uh, here a little bit about uh, your website. We've we've got a we've got to talk about your podcast. I'm wearing a very comfortable T-shirt uh, that you sell right now. This uh, uh, off the X podcast T-shirt is just about the softest fucking thing that I own. Um, so let's let's talk about uh, about the Off the X podcast and and where that came from and and uh, what you're doing with that show. Yeah, sure. So I started, you know, I, so I wrote the book Agents Unknown. We talked about it at the beginning, and uh, I, you know, I, when COVID hit, I was doing executive security for a CEO here for a big company, a, a publicly traded company for a CEO. And uh, COVID hit, and he wasn't traveling anymore. He wasn't going overseas. He wasn't doing things. And I said, "Man, I'm gonna lose. I might lose my job. So I need to start promoting my book more." And uh, and I was already kind of down the path with Instagram and a few other uh, you know mediums to to promote it and to, to help mentor uh, candidates, future DSAs, ask, ask questions and, and do things like that. And I thought, well, why don't you know? I think I listened to Gary V's book, uh, Gary Vaynerchuk, and it's like you you know, world at your fingertips, basically use media. And, start a podcast. So, you know what? It's a good way to network. It's a good way to meet people. It's a good way to talk to old friends. And that's what I've done a lot of, uh, probably about half and half people I, I already knew. And, um, and also a good way to get the word out about DS and all the, the good work that, that DS is doing, the bank security is doing, and, and to talk about, uh, you know, the, the, the historical events we've been part of. And, 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 and technically the podcast, I should be, you know, talk about more global security issues, kind of like we're talking about now, but I've kind of been focused on getting DS, Agents in just because uh, I've, I've found a little bit of a passion in supporting these guys and girls that are interested in, in pursuing DS. You know, I, I, it was a hard job to get into. There's not a lot of information out there. So, you know, that's what it's about. Uh, you know, off the X, just it's the, the X is the, you know, the kill zone, contact zone. And, and you know, anytime anyone's contacted, whether you're a civilian and you, you get, you know, you're getting attacked or you're in a high threat zone or you're a cop, right? You want to, uh, if you're getting ambushed, you want to get off the X. Um, and so that's what the, the name of the title, the, the title comes from. Um, and so, yeah, we've been kind of taking down that path. I'm off and on. I'm, I'm, you know, I've, I've, I was inconsistent towards the end of last year. I do have a young son, like I mentioned. Uh, but this year I've dedicated uh, or made a goal to have at least one episode uh, a month. Um, and so, you know, I just had someone on Friday night. Uh, and I'll, I'll be publishing that here probably, you know, early next week. But yeah, it's it's fun, man. I, you know, I, I I just really just shoot the shit and let them talk. I I I realized after communicating, talking with you, that I have a lot of work to do on my hosting skills because I think you're inquisitive and have some great questions and transitions. Uh, but you know, this is this is not a skill set that I, I I'm very good at, but I'll hopefully continue to develop it. I find that uh, that being a podcast host and being a detective uh, can kind of go hand in hand and that I've, I've learned a specific way of, of conducting interviews. And, uh, I just try to augment that. I, I do appreciate your kind words. Um, uh, but, uh, but what, how do people go about finding you? What's, what's the, what's your Instagram? What's your website? Yeah. So my website's Cody Um, I have, 
you know, you can find everything on there. You can find the book, buy directly from me. You can go to Amazon and buy it. It's, it's, you can also go through my website to Amazon, but it's available on Amazon. You have Amazon Prime. It's helpful. Um, uh, I am uh, on Instagram primarily, off the X underscore Inc. Inc. Um, I do sell shirts. Uh, I have a few hats. It's mostly just branding. You know, I'm not an apparel company, but I have a few a few items that I put out there, and I'm learning that you know uh, when you're in the apparel business, there's there's issues. Like uh, some of these shirts I had had some poor ink. The guy that did it used cheap ink, and and so you deal with these issues. But but uh, but I am on those pages. I'm CodyParon.com. Um, off the X underscore Inc. Um, is my Instagram. And uh, I have a Facebook group. If anyone, if it's any cops listening and they're interested in pursuing a career in diplomatic security, uh, they can go to Facebook group, Becoming a DSS Agent, and where there's active DS agents engaging with uh, veterans and veteran DS agents, retired and former, and the candidates. So we're all there, which is, I think, a pretty unique group. It's never happened before. So they can go there, still have questions. I'm on YouTube. Um, I just sit there and talk, you know probably boring tone, but I think I get some good intel on the job. Uh, so I have 20 something videos up on, on becoming a DSS agent. I talk about different things too, about leadership, uh, you know, in, in security leadership in these overseas environments. And uh, every once in a while I'll post something up there, like a, a hack, like, uh, you know, how to do, how to do something uh, or, or, you know, how to, how to keep yourself safe. Yeah, I think it really is uh you know, when I, when I my my Instagram, I'll, I'll post global security issues. I'll post personal safety issues. I'll post stuff about DS. It's a little bit of everything, and uh, I tried to give some thought at one point into narrowing it down. I said, why? Why? Just I'm just doing it for fun, you know. So uh, that's where I'm at. I am writing another book. Um, I'm writing well two. I'm I'm gonna do an update to uh, Agents Unknown. I'm gonna have a few more stories and get it professionally edited this time. I have a hard. That's gonna be a hard time. Yeah, hardcover, right? Uh, and so that's that's happening. And I'm writing a, a, another book. Uh, it's, it's basically keeping yourself safe, uh, type of stuff. Soft skills. Nice. I uh, like it. Out. I like it. I I ordered your book directly from your website. It takes. I mean, Amazon Prime is nice. It takes no time though to get here. I think I ordered it. You know, at the beginning of the week and had it at the end of the week. Had to pick up some stickers and some T-shirts and, uh, like you said, it's branding. But uh, but. Uh, one of the the stickers is on the back uh, the of the skeleton pulling the the wounded skeleton off the X. It's sitting on my fridge in my my cube, and people walk past my fridge and they're like, "Oh, what, whoa, whoa, tell me about that." So that uh, the branding is is effective. You've got you've got some really awesome shit going on there. I'm excited for uh, for a new copy of Agents Unknown and and the new stories. Excited for this other book you got going as well. Um, we'll have to get people out checking out your YouTube channel and. Uh, hopefully, should you ever be uh, out here in Arizona, uh, I do believe you're, you got a trip out coming up. Uh, uh, anybody who's listened to this show know that uh, knows that usually I provide ample amounts of bourbon, um, and it just so happens, as we discussed at the beginning, that uh, you and Abraham Lincoln there are bourbon drinkers, so I, I owe you a glass uh, should you ever find yourself out this way. Uh, my last question to you, uh, Cody, I mean, you've got your own you've got your own podcast, you have had a global reach and you continue to have a global reach, but you do have yet again, a microphone to the world. Um, uh, what are some things that the world should hear from Cody Perron? Oh man, that's a, that's a good one. I forgot to text that one to you. Sorry about that. (laughs) I I think with, you know, I, I think we're at a critical point in the, so I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a passionate, individual uh i love this country I, i've seen 
you know, despair. I wrote this in my book. I've seen despair at its greatest heights and, you know, in refugee camps, Syrian refugee camps and, you know, poorer places in Vietnam um, and, and elsewhere in the 40 plus countries I've traveled. And, and we, while we may think we have it bad here for some way, some reason, we all have our own issues and we, it might be bad. As if you put it into perspective, we live in an awesome country uh, and, 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 uh, and, and really, we need to find a way to come back together to find some common ground. Um, you know, that you're going to have your, your, your crazies on either side that are going to be really, really uh, out there that you won't agree with at all, likely. Um, and it seems like those, those always have the biggest mouths and get the most publicity. But I think that most of us are somewhere in the middle, whether it's left, middle, right, middle, or just middle. And, and I think there, there are good people on both sides and we can find some common ground. And if we want to, if we want to survive as a country, if we don't want these other countries, you know, uh, expanding their reach and showing up at our doorstep, and I know I'm, I say that rhetorically, but also 100 years down the road or less, uh, we need to find a way to come together and to, uh, to to work to make to continue to make this, you know, an awesome place to be. We have a lot of things to work on. You know, people say greatest country on earth. I would agree. We're, we're not perfect. We're no way perfect. We haven't been perfect by any means, and no one's saying that. But we don't find a way to come together. Um, uh, we're our grandkids are going to pay the consequences some somewhere or how, whether it's here in our own land, whether it's a you know a, a war between uh, our own people, or, or a, 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 you know, and I hope that is never the case, or a, a war in a foreign land against an adversary again, or or even here. Uh, we need to come together. The world is a dangerous place, not just on a micro level when you're walking down the street, but also on a macro level. The world is a dangerous place, and uh, we need to find a way to work together, find a way to build and not tear down. Absolutely, man. It's it's a consistent theme on this show that uh, when I ask people that question, the, the general response is, we need to learn to get along, and uh, we need to stop being assholes to one another. And I, I think that that... That says something. I mean, I talk to cops, bottom line. I talk to cops or people who have something to do with law enforcement, generally speaking, and that is the consistent message that is shared. And again, I, I mean, I look at my two-year-old just like you look at yours um, and wonder what kind of world we're going to leave them, um, you know, that they're going to grow up in. And I can only hope that, uh, uh, you know, we continue to, to work towards uh, a more positive uh, uh, environment there and, and just move that ball down the field one yard at a time. Yeah, man. Yep. Well, Cody, stay on the line for me, man. I'm going to go ahead and sign us off. I do really appreciate you coming on the show. CodyPeron.com, off the X underscore Inc. on Instagram. Uh, check out his book, Agents Unknown, uh, and grab yourself some stickers and no bullshit. This T-shirt is super soft and comfortable, and the colors have maintained themselves quite well in the wash. So, <laughs> hey, 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 real, real quick, Kevin, thank, thanks for having me, uh, and uh, you know, give my best to to your family and your and your police family as well. You guys do some hard work. Anyone in uniform does do some difficult work, and, and we certainly appreciate and respect uh, what you guys do. So, stay safe. On that, uh, yeah, and on on that note, I I do want to I intended to do this at the beginning of the show, but just got wrapped up. Um, so uh, as as you. Uh, as you find yourself ending this this podcast, uh, just uh, take a moment and think about uh, Huntington Beach Police Department lost a helicopter pilot yesterday. They had one of their birds crash into the ocean just offshore. Um, uh, one one crew member was was uh, he's he's going to make it. He's uh, as I understand it, he's stable, but they have they they did lose uh, a crew member there. So 
Um, I, I often, I get frustrated when people talk about thoughts and prayers, but, but truly, uh, Huntington Beach, BBDPD, uh, you guys are, it's, it's close to home for me being from Orange County. So, uh, so you guys are, are, are in my heart right now. So as, uh, as you find yourself, uh, audience, uh, uh, ending to, to your time listening to this show, just take a moment and, uh, say a quick word, uh, to whoever it is you, you want to say it to, um, uh, la- oh, one last thing, Cody, I forgot to ask you, man, on, on a, a slightly uh, more comedic note is uh, uh, The Rock played a uh, diplomatic security agent in the Fast and Furious movies that he was in. Uh, if you find who trained him, uh, I don't think that he paid one bit of fucking attention to <laughs> to what DS actually does. No. <laughs> I, don't the, I don't think the creators of that movie want to I think they, I don't know how they found the, our organization at all, but uh, they certainly didn't look to see what we do. They said, "Hey, these guys operated nationally and threw him in there." And that's it. But, yeah, so know, it, but it got us a little publicity. Got, got, yes, a little publicity. It got it got you something, right? Service. Sort of the uh, the Top Gun for the diplomatic security service there. I guess it could it could have been worse. Could have been way better. I don't really know. So if uh, hopefully by the time people get done listening to this show, they know that uh, if their only exposure was Dwayne the Rock Johnson in uh, one of the ten thousand Fast and Furious movies where he's a diplomatic security agent, that that ain't it at all. So. Oh, man. With that, Cody, thank you again for so much for coming on, man. To everybody listening, I thank you all for your continued support. Stay safe, and I'll see you on the road.